I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 23, the Gospel of Luke chapter 23. And I want to read the verses 26 through to the end of 43. Luke 23, beginning to read at verse 26. Luke chapter 23, verse 26. Hear the word of the Lord with me. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and the women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that have never bore, and the breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left hand. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged with him, hanged and blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even hear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Thus far, the reading of God's word. And our text for this morning, I take from the verses 42 and 43. Then he said to Jesus, that's the criminal then. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing the reading and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Salem with me this morning. The words of our text of this morning have got to be among the most beautiful words spoken in scripture. They were spoken by our Lord to a penitent thief while both he and the Christ hung on a cross waiting to die. There are many portions of scripture from which the saints of God take great comfort and hope, but among all of the precious comforting statements of our Lord, these words have got to be the most precious. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Imagine yourself, if you will, imagine yourself laying at death's door. The all-encompassing, the all-inclusive question for you then has to be, 
Is it right with me and the Lord? Is it well with my soul? And then imagine again that, that there you are, waiting to die, knowing that you have perhaps only hours left on this earth. And as you struggle with the question of eternal weal or way for your soul, imagine that you were to hear these precious words from Christ. Today you will be with me in paradise. Would that not be the most precious, precious thing possible? Is that not precisely what you had longed for all of your life? And we will hear those words spoken this morning by our Lord while hanging on the tree on Golgotha. It is hard in this context not to think of an earlier incident in Scripture which foreshadows the plea of the criminal on the cross. And I remind you of the Old Testament incident of Joseph after he had been sold into slavery by his brothers. You remember the story. You will remember that he was taken to Egypt and sold into the household of Potiphar. And he was then falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and he was cast into prison. And remember with me now, we confess that according to the scriptures, nothing comes to us by chance. But all things, prosperity and adversity, all things come to us from Father's loving hand. So in other words, all of the life of Joseph, including this particular incident, was under the direction and the appointment of a sovereign God. So then it was appointed by God that Joseph would wind up in that prison. And then while in prison, God directed that Joseph would become acquainted with the king's butler who was about to be released. Joseph took the opportunity to ask of the man that he would present Joseph's case before the king after his release. And, and there too we hear Joseph pleading with the man, remember me, he said, remember me when it is well with you. When you stand in the presence of the king, remember me, remember me. And now centuries later, three crosses were set upon the hill of Golgotha. Jesus in the center, laying down his life as a ransom for many, and on each side of him, criminals who had also been sentenced to death and, and were privileged to listen to a conversation going on between these three men on the cross only a few hours before they die. And one of them sneered and taunted Christ. If you are the Christ, if you really are who you say you are, if you're really the Son of God, then, then, then come down from this tree and, and save yourself and us. And Jesus remains silent. But the other criminal responds to his cohort. Do you, not, do you not fear God? Seeing we are under the same condemnation and we justly, we deserve our punishment. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then we hear the plea of that first criminal. We hear, the, we hear the words that have continued to ring down over the centuries, comforting the hearts of God's children. Jesus, Lord, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, Jesus, Lord, remember me. And the reply from Jesus was far more than the thief had dared to hope for. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. Like Joseph before him, he was asking to be remembered in order that he might be able to, that he might be set free. Oh, not free from prison as was the case with Joseph. No, he pleads here that he might be set free from the chains of death and hell that had ensnared him all of his misspent life. He pleads that he may be set free from Satan in order that he might return to God. 
Jesus, Lord, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today you shall be with me in paradise. We see here a man converted in the shadows of death. And from the reply of Christ, we might know that Christ heard more than the words of this man. He saw more than meets the natural eye. Reading the heart as only Jesus could do. Jesus found in the words of this thief a confession of sin and a profession of faith. Hearing his good confession, both of faith and repentance, Jesus reaches out to comfort this man with those precious words. Today you shall be with me in paradise. And I want to administer God's word to you this morning using as my theme the word of salvation. The word of salvation. We will see the penitent thief and from this incident we will learn of God's sovereign providence and also God's sovereign grace. God's sovereign providence and God's sovereign grace. People have got a great drama is being played out here. The most significant and greatest act of God in his plan of redemption happens here. It was the design of God that his own son would die on this cross. And it was the intent of God that he would do so in shame between the dregs of society. And now the first question we want to consider for a moment is why? Meaning then, not why did he die? We know the answer to that question. No, why did he die between two criminals? There must have been a reason if, as we confess to believe, that nothing happens apart from the decree of God. And if we also confess (coughs) that God does not act arbitrarily, meaning then without good reason, what then could have been the reason that God ordained that Christ would be flanked by these two common criminals at his death? And the answer is at hand, if only we will see it. And it is a twofold answer. First of all, we're given here a perfect picture. A perfect picture of the consequences of being confronted with the Christ. Throughout all of history, even yet today, men and women are confronted with the Christ and we see the two opposite responses, precisely as we see here in the posture of these two criminals. The one criminal softens his heart, places his hope in Christ, and is assured of of, of eternal pardon, and he dies in peace. The other, having been brought to the same Christ in the same way, hardens his heart, continues to ridicule and reject the Christ, and will find no rest for his soul. Why is that now? Both of them were equally near the Christ. Both heard and saw all that happened during those last six hours. Both were suffering. Both were dying. Both were in urgent need of forgiveness. Yet one died as he lived in his sins, hard, cold, and impenitent. The other repented of his sin, called upon the Lord for mercy, and was saved into all eternity. And all of it, then as now, can only be explained in the context of the sovereignty of God. And as we'll see a little later, also in the great grace of God, it can be explained in no other way. However, there's also another lesson for us here when we ask the question, why between two criminals? And the answer to that question has to be to demonstrate the indescribable depths of shame into which Christ had had descended. Follow with me. You remember at his birth, Jesus found himself in a stable, surrounded by animals. 
and now it is death Christ is surrounded by the dregs of humanity and seen within the context of God's plan of redemption that makes sense was Christ not numbered among the transgressors to show us the position he had taken as our substitute was that not our place was that not our place our shame our humiliation Indeed, we need to see we need to see ourselves in those common criminals. Along with them, we too we stood condemned to death. Uh, people of God, uh, we are we are to see those two criminals, and then we are to see we are to see ourselves. We were the criminals. God had condemned us to death. And now all of humanity, including you and me, we hang there beside the Christ and we're confronted with the Christ. And then the question is for each of us, what think ye of the Christ? Will you ignore him? Will you reject him? Will you mock him as did the impenitent thief? Or will you turn to him and cry out, Jesus, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. That's what we're called to see here, first of all, in that great drama of salvation. We see the Savior's redemption. We see a penitent, believing sinner, and we see a condemned sinner rejecting the offer of so great a salvation. And we see it all in the context of divine grace and providence. Oh, the world in which we live does not recognize the sovereignty or the providence of God, and that ought not to surprise us, for the Bible tells us that the spiritual things are spiritually discerned. In other words, the eyes of faith are necessary to discern the things of God. Indeed, unregenerate men, non-Christians, they attribute circumstances in the world to be the hand of fate and, and chance rather than to the hand of God. But for the child of God, all of this takes a much different color. For the child of God, all circumstances arise by God's determinate will. And all things, great and small, the Lord God planned them all. And that planning and that directing in accordance with his own eternal decree is what the Christian calls divine providence. And to help us not to understand our text this morning, in the context of God's providence, we need to begin by asking the question, how did it happen? How did it happen that these two criminals came to be crucified on either side of the Lord? If we were to take the world's view, then we would have to say that it was mere coincidence or expedience that these two criminals were executed along with the Christ. If we took that approach, we would, we would know of no real compelling reason why they were crucified together. Without the eyes of faith, we would say it was, it was chance or fate. Had they been tried a few days later, they would have been executed later. If, they, if we were to ask the Roman authorities these questions, they would simply say it was expedient, it was convenient to execute three at once. For them, the answer to the question was quite simple. These criminals happened to be convicted. They happened to be sentenced. And they happened to be executed at the same time. It just happened that way. But, 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 but such a humanistic uh, view does not take into consideration the active government of God over all of creation. According to our scriptures, there is no such thing as fate or chance in this world. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing is done out of convenience or expediency. No, before the world's foundations were even laid, 
God had ordained, God had determined that these two men would hang on a cross on either side of the Lord on that particular day. Before the penitent thief was even born, even before he had entered into a life of crime, before he had been arrested, before the Roman courts had condemned him to death by crucifixion, before any of these circumstances had come to pass, God had determined that this man would be arrested at precisely this time, that he would be tried and sentenced at precisely this time, and his cross would be erected at precisely this time, and at precisely in this place beside the Savior. Just as Peter was to say later of his Lord that Jesus was delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, we must say the same thing of that thief. The fact that he was condemned to die at the hands of the Roman soldiers at this time, at this place, in this way, was by the determinate counsel and the foreknowledge of God. Ah, my dear precious people of God, what we are to see here is the in, in, in this is this interplay of the divine and the human in the circumstances of the death of Christ. It was the evil hearts of the Jews that caused him to, to, to them to nail him to the cross. The corruption of the heart of Judas caused him to betray the Christ. The sinful nature of Pilate caused him to sentence an innocent man to die, and yet all of it, all of it came to pass within the framework of the determinate will of God and under divine sovereignty. None of it would have happened. None of it could have happened had it not been for the will and the decree of God. God had foreordained that this man would come to this time and to this place to be confronted with the Christ in this way on this cross. But having said that, congregation, then we must immediately also see that the same is true for each and every one of us. That confession has tremendous implications for us. Each of us, having been brought into a saving relationship with Christ, have come to know him through the predetermined knowledge and the decree of God. God then has directed all of the circumstances of your life and he has directed your life so that you would come to a saving knowledge of the Christ at the time and the place appointed by him. My dear saints of God, precious people, capture this with me now. The doctrine being taught us here and its implications are significant and may not escape us. You see, most of you were born in believing, covenant-keeping homes. And through the preaching, through catechism instruction, through the, through the speech and example of godly parents, you were brought into contact with the Christ. And some sooner and some later, you came to a personal consciousness of both your sin and your salvation in Christ. And you then confessed him as Savior and Lord. Some of us were perhaps brought to the same conviction through the godly influence of a marriage partner. Others were perhaps led initially by friends, relatives, or a faithful neighbor. But whatever the circumstances may have been, whether we were born and raised in the church, whether we were brought in, whether it was through loved ones or through friends or evangelization, we need to understand that all of those circumstances leading us to Christ lie within the plan of God for our lives. 
just as God planned and directed the life of this penitent thief so that he would ultimately, it would ultimately culminate in a saving knowledge of the Christ in the same way God planned, God ordained, God determined, God decreed, and God guided all of our life's circumstances so that we too would be confronted with the Christ and come to a saving knowledge of him. But there remains in this text another significant doctrine, that of sovereign grace. And these two doctrines are so interrelated. Follow this with me. Two criminals crucified with Christ. The providence of God brought them both to the cross beside our Lord. One turned from the Christ. The other turned to the Christ. How do we explain that? Peter God, it can only be explained in the same way that the Bible explains every other instance of conversion. It's taught us in Ephesians chapter 2. We heard it in our prayer this morning. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. We sang of that this morning. Tis not that I did choose thee, for Lord, that could not be. This heart, my heart, your heart would still refuse thee. Hadst thou not chosen me? The faith of the penitent sinner then must be understood as a great free gift from a sovereign God who sovereignly planted it in his heart in divine favor or grace. People of God, when we think of these two men hanging on that cross, one in faith, the other in unbelief, then our mind should go back to two other men in scripture, Jacob and Esau. We learn that one became a man of faith, the other perished in unbelief. However, we read about that in Genesis, but we do not understand that until we come to the ninth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans where we read the children, those two boys, having not yet been born, neither having done anything good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calls. It was said to the mother, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So then, concludes Paul, so then, it is not of him who wills or of him who runs, but it is of God who shows mercy. Now we begin to understand why one criminal believed and one scoffed. Not of him who wills or of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. God then executes his sovereign purposes in all men. When Paul preached to the citizens of Antioch, some believed, others did not. And then we read, as many as were ordained or appointed to eternal life, they believed. Paul preached to a group of women by the riverbanks at Philippi. And out of that group, one believed. Why? Why? Why did Lydia believe and the others not? And again we read, And the Lord opened her heart, and that she attended to the word spoken. In the same way now God, God opened the heart of the one criminal, causing him to believe. That now is what we read in Romans 9. And that's what we see here in our text when we distinguish between the two criminals equally condemned. Therefore, says Paul in Romans 9, 18, Therefore God has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills God hardens. Oh, people, how often do we not go astray on this point? We have here before us a doctrine that seems unreasonable to us, and therefore we try to reason it out, and more often than not, we try to reason it away. 
So often we take the way of the Arminian error. We conclude that man, man himself must prepare himself for salvation beforehand. And then man must see to it that he remains in it afterwards through his own works. And to prove that this must be so, many Arminians will point us to the example of Paul. Look at Paul, we're told. Look at Paul. What do they mean to say? Well, look, they say, look at Paul. (laughs) Before his miraculous conversion, Paul was, as to the law, blameless. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And morally, he was false. He kept the law, and and he led a good life. And then after his conversion, he became the apostle to the Gentiles. Being constrained by the love of God, he spent himself preaching the gospel. He followed the master probably closer than had any before him or since. He kept himself in the faith through his own tireless efforts. And then the conclusion is, that's the way of salvation. Paul prepared himself unto salvation beforehand and worked hard to maintain it after his conversion. But, 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 but the example, but, but, but examine the folly of such thinking with me here in the context of the dying thief. He had no moral life before his conversion, and he had no opportunity for Christian service afterwards. Before his conversion, he, rege- he respected neither the law of God nor the laws of man or the land. He died just a few hours after his conversion, never having had opportunity to engage in any Christian work or service. I emphasize this because that is the error under which so many of us lose our way. We're under the false illusion that we must prepare ourselves before God will accept us. And once having been accepted, it's possible to still lose our salvation if we don't work for it and add it. But the dying thief had no good works, either before or after his conversion. And yet he heard, today... You shall be with me in paradise. How can that be? We know the answer. Not of him who wills. Not of him who runs or works. But of God. Who sovereignly shows mercy to whom he wills. Saved by sovereign grace. People got how often men would try to explain this doctrine away. They were suggested in the case of this converted man... It was probably the pain of the crucifixion that drove him to reconsider the things of the spiritual. Or perhaps, as others suggest, it was the approach of death that caused him to reconsider the life hereafter. In other words, it was the outward circumstances that caused him to reevaluate his misspent life before he died. But, But all of these circumstances, they were instruments in the hands of God to bring about God's purposes. And moreover, it was God's purpose to bring this man to salvation at this time and in this place and in this way. If it were indeed true that the pain or the cross drove this man to repentance, then would not the same have to be said of the other criminal? We know that's not so. Both suffered the same circumstances externally, but sovereign grace opened the heart of the one while the other was left and remained in his sin. External forces or influences in and of themselves will never, can never drive a man to Christ. External influences may indeed be used by God towards that end, but conversion results only when God sovereignly opens the heart. Ah, as Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind with me, 
and let this biblical truth sink deeply into your soul, people of God. What we have seen here in our text then is that God's providence and God's grace are the only things that can move a man to recognize Christ as Lord and Savior. The only way that any one of us can come to Christ is by the grace of God. When it comes to salvation, it is not a matter of God offering and man accepting or rejecting. It's not a matter of man cooperating with God. No, those are those who are saved. They are saved only because of the gracious uh, grace of God. My dear precious parents and grandparents, Parents and grandparents who mourn over lost and straying children. What tremendous comfort is given you here. How often have we not as godly parents wept over wandering children. How many nights were not spent with tears and prayer. Pounding on heaven's door. Pleading with God for the return of a prodigal son or a daughter. How many times have godly parents not cried out in despair and anguish, Lord, I don't know what else I can do. My son, my daughter, my grandchild, oh Lord. People of God, here's the answer for you. Take heart. Take comfort. Look to that thief on the cross. In the hour of his death, we heard, Lord Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Take hope then. God may yet work the miracle of grace in the heart of your son or daughter. This text must also be of comfort for families whose unbelieving loved ones died. Even at the very point of death, men and women having rejected God and his Christ for all of their lives can still in grace be brought into saving faith. But those of you who still mourn over wandering sons and daughters, you ask, how long may I have hope? How long do I continue to pray? Fathers, mothers, grandparents, if you are wrestling with God for the soul of your son or daughter or a grandchild, do so for as long as God grants you life and breath. God may yet work that miracle of redeeming grace even at the very portals of the shadows of death. Remember that God works in his own time in the accomplishment of his purposes. God had determined to bring this man to the cross before he softened his heart. Missionaries and preachers work with this fact across the world. Sometimes they labor for many years with seeing scant or no fruit at all upon their hard work. In other places, the gospel is preached and many respond almost immediately. Was that now because of the gifts or the talents of the preacher? Was it the persuasive talents of one over against the dull, boring, dry sermons of another one? No, it was the grace of God. It was the time of God and it was the spirit of God accompanying the preached word of God. Oh, indeed, we must learn to pray for the conversion of souls, but we must also learn to wait upon the time of the Lord. My dear precious people of God, if there be anyone here this morning who has not yet been brought fully under the influence of the cross, then God lays it upon my pastor's heart to call you to do so yet today. Oh, indeed, it's all of God. It's all of God. But God also commands you to believe. Never will you be able to blame God by saying, Oh, I was not one of the chosen ones, so there was nothing I could do. No, you can never use that argument. 
No one can blame God that he or she was eternally lost. No, indeed, we have heard much this morning about God's sovereignty, but with equal vigor does the Bible speak of man's responsibility. If you would still today, if you would still today refuse to hear the gospel, if you will still not be moved to seeking the Christ, even after seeing him on the cross this morning, then Christ has nothing more to say to you other than the word that he spoke to the Pharisees. Oh, you, you would not come. As a hen gathers her chickens, I tried to gather you, but you would not come in order that you might have salvation. Was it then because God did not choose you? No. God called you again and again and again. <coughs> he does so every Sunday again. He has done so again this morning. What did you do with that call? Consider now the reply of the Christ to the penitent thief. Today you shall be with me in paradise. Oh, precious, precious, precious words for the child of God. Words of comfort, words of encouragement, of hope and good cheer. They speak of God's abundant mercy. No one has ever sinned so deeply, so foully, so heinously, so, so deeply that the blood of the cross could not cleanse it. No one has ever come to Christ with broken heart and penitent spirit only to be turned away. If you are burdened with your sin, then look at this criminal on the cross. This man's sins were so great that they brought him a death sentence. But it was precisely there that Christ yet forgave him all of his misspent life. Oh, for you too. Your sins may be so grievous that you fear there can be no forgiveness. But do not despair. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And finally, to the Christian, these words speak of hope for the future. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. Today, meaning the very moment that you die, your soul will be with Christ in glory. Your body is separated from your soul. Your body is laid in the grave to await the second coming of Christ. But your soul, your conscious soul, ascends immediately to be with Christ in paradise. Oh, may it be the prayer of each of us to cry out with the penitent thief, Jesus, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And in answer to such prayer, when, when offered in faith and repentance, God will surely answer, my child, my son, my daughter, you will be with me in paradise. And it is now that great good news of the gospel that we celebrate at the table this morning. We come to the table to remember and to say thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that in your grace and in your mercy thou hast remembered me.